In this episode of the OIS Podcast, we hear the untold story about Dick Lindstrom's unlikely path to becoming the world's most renowned ophthalmologist. Let's listen in. Good afternoon, everybody. This is uh, Dr. Hassan Sadri. I am a board-certified uh, ophthalmologist here in Newport Beach, California, Orange County, and I'm also um, a partner at Visionary Ventures, uh, also located in Orange County. And my next guest is, um, I'm actually so delighted uh, and just unbelievably excited to get him to, out of his busy schedule, come join us. He's an international recognized leader in our field. Um, some say he's probably the most famous ophthalmologist that ever lived. <laughs> and I believe that, um, and you know, his extensive career spans on cornea, cataract, refractive surgeries, and he's, he's just, a you know, I've been really fortunate enough to be uh, friends with him and he, I consider him a, a mentor uh, and a partner of different ventures that we're involved with and, uh, his name is Dr. Richard Lindstrom, Dr. Dick Lindstrom. We're absolutely delighted to have you. How are you doing, Dick? I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing well. So the good news is I'm uh, you know, hunkered down in Minnesota and uh, and staying well. So and the whole family as well. There are 20 of us here. So 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 far good. Yeah, I remember I got you on the phone. I think you were the first person I called when this when the when we got sheltered in place. And, and I, you know, we, we both said, hey, we'll probably be back on the air um, in June. And here we are in July. It's kind of bummed um, that I, I missed you. I haven't seen you. So how you been? And how's the family? And what are you guys doing to uh, keep um, going? Well, we're, you know, we're all well here. And uh, you know, our practice, Minnesota Eye Consultants, is uh, uh, back actually to full speed ahead. So we... Uh, like everyone else, we're down, you know, about 80%. We never closed, but in April, we were just doing urgencies and emergencies, and we were down about 80% in April, came back to about 50% uh, to 60% in May. Uh, and uh, June, we have, you know, towards the end here, uh, and on into July, gotten back to really uh, 100%. We've learned how to see patients uh, uh, just as fast as we did before in the clinic and also in the operating room. But uh, our overhead has gone up. And, and what I say uh, is that we have more screeners and cleaners, you know. So so to get into the office, you need to be screened. And we've had to hire people to screen the uh, patients and then to, you know, operate and or see patients in the clinic at a, at a full bore pace and to do the right thing as far as uh, Hygiene. We've we've actually have cleaners uh, uh, that are uh, that just clean the lanes after every patient. So, and then of course we have the personal protective equipment for the patients and for us. So we can take care of patients. I would say it's uh, in some ways not as much fun as it once was because uh, the patients have a mask on, we have a mask on. Uh, you don't uh, you know quite get the facial expressions and the interpersonal relationship. We can't have as many family members in the uh, waiting room. Uh, as a matter of fact, we only have a family member if the patient absolutely needs one. Uh, and so uh, we don't get to interact with the family like we once did. And uh, we always wore masks in the OR, but only during the, the case and then took them off. And now, you know, from seven in the morning till six at night, if you're working a long day, you know, you're wearing a mask and, you know, 
for me, that's annoying, but I think it probably is for for everyone. But we're, we're, we've adapted. Uh, the number of patients who want us to uh, help them preserve, restore, and enhance their vision uh, is as many as ever, and uh, the value of vision is still high. Uh, and so our patients are are coming in. We have a few that uh, you know are anxious, but they're less anxious when we see the safe way we manage them, and they're much less anxious coming to an outpatient clinic uh, for ophthalmology exam or to an ASC for ophthalmology surgery than they would be, for example, going to a hospital outpatient department. So, so we're back. Uh, we're back busy, and uh, some of my friends actually are even. Uh, uh, performing a little higher than they were prior to COVID uh, as they catch up. So, so we went down more than anybody in ophthalmology, and I think we've come fast, uh, come back faster than anyone in ophthalmology. And we're an example of that here in Minneapolis. So I'm, I'm really excited because, you know, as you can see, if you're listening to this, you see how open and transparent he is, and also probably very thorough. It's uh, one of the few people that I've met that... Um, it has the ability, you have the ability, Dick, and I tell you this in front of you and behind you, that ha you have the breadth, but also the depth of um, knowledge when it comes to when it comes to all the different uh, things that you and I talk about, and especially um, this COVID business, because it's you know your long, very um, uh, lustrous career. I think this is probably the first time, right? If you've ever seen something like this, and. Yeah, let's pivot a little bit because I, I want to get your opinion. You know, you're you got like more than 40 patents, right? Um, mostly on corneal work that you've done, eye wells and instruments, of course. What are your what are your thoughts on and you and I talk about in these calls when on for on the visionary side on the smaller companies that are really sort of they don't have the resources, they're startup, they have uh, they don't have a lot of dry power. What where What's the good word for them? What should they be focused on? Well, I think, you know, we are small businessmen as, as ophthalmologists, and and uh, and then I do serve on a large number of board of directors from my my work with the investment firm Flying L and uh, Visionary Ventures with you, uh, and then also some uh, other startups on my own. And I think the challenges are somewhat similar. Uh, you know, we initially needed to look very carefully at both the cost side uh, of what we were doing and, and cut costs where we could, and at the same time sort of raise uh, raise some capital, you know, as a as a, uh, a method to preserve our, our futures. And so, so those were the two things that most of us did to try to survive. You know the worst of this, and uh, and and the smaller companies obviously are coming back as well. So we we have two sets of small companies we deal with. Uh, you know, one set is the pre-commercial company, and most of them are uh, basically in the clinical trial stage. And of course, clinical trials uh, you know went to a, a minimum, uh, uh, and so that basically set them behind. And each startup company has a certain amount of overhead to keep the lights open and the team in place, and if you're not enrolling patients, you know that's a, you know that's a, a meaningful uh, drain on funds, and so uh, so that's been a challenge for the pre-commercial company, and uh, basically move timelines back, and so that means that you know we won't get quite as far as we like uh, with any startup company that's in pre-commercial stage before we might have to raise more money, and that will be a challenge, and I guess we'll have to see 
and what money raising looks like in the next 6, 12, and, and 18 months. I have some anxiety about it. But so far, you know, capital has continued to be available. Uh, in the early commercial companies, obviously, they got uh, crushed if they were providing supplies, uh, you know, to, uh, to the ophthalmic uh, field. And uh, yeah, whether they're big or small, you know, th that was difficult. And many of the smaller companies are less well capitalized. So it was the same issue, which was to rapidly reduce costs, which usually included furloughing, you know, employees and, you know, looking to, you know, take advantage of the government programs, you know, when appropriate and when available. And then, uh, and then trying to, uh, you know, uh, set aside a war chest, if you would, uh, of capital to, uh, to try to survive. Um, I would say that we're all a little anxious right now. I mean, in, in America, we, we kind of blasted up to about 32,000 cases a, uh, a day from about 100 cases a day between March and April, and that's when we shut down. And then we all behaved and social distanced and, and wore our masks and washed our hands and the like. And we went, you know, for the next two months from 32,000 to 25,000 to 21,000 cases a day. And then um, we started loosening up, and I, I called it a little bit like cabin fever in Minnesota. I called it COVID fever, but everybody sort of went rushing outside uh, and uh, headed for the bars and headed for the beaches and headed for the restaurants and forgot to, uh, you know, deal with uh, uh, their social distancing and masks and the like. And we're having a meaningful surge in cases uh, around America, some states worse than, than others, but even in the better states, there's somewhat of a surge. And, you know, we've gone from that 21,000, you know, cases a day up to over 60,000 cases a day, uh, you know, in about a month's time. And, uh, you know, we don't know how high it will go, but it's still going up. Some people think it's the second, uh, the second wave, but it's not the second wave. We're still in the first... Uh, the first episode here, we may still have a second wave to look forward to, you know, six to 12 months from now, but we haven't managed the first wave yet. So, yeah. so now those states that are, you know, struggling are having to shut down. I think the real question for we ophthalmologists is, is you know, will we get shut down again? And I, I personally believe that, you know, those of us that operate uh, in our own clinics and in our own ambulatory surgery centers will not get shut down. But I do believe there'll be some uh, doctors who work in hospital outpatient departments, uh, uh, perhaps some doctors in university medical centers or large clinics where, uh, you know, there is a big surge of COVID cases coming in, uh, where there might be another, uh, you know, dialing back, if you will, of access to elective eye care and uh, elective surgery. But so I think we private practice ophthalmologists have seen the worst of it, but I'm, I'm anxious for some of our colleagues who work in the bigger medical centers uh, because they're getting overrun in, in, in some cities again, in, in Texas and in Florida and in Arizona. Uh, and there's a little anxiety in some cities, even in California, where you live. Yeah, it's, it's been certainly challenging. I, I, I definitely think, I, you know, the, the issue here locally, as you know, Orange County has been sort of a renegade when it comes to wearing masks. And <laughs> locally, what they did was the, the Orange County Super Board of Supervisors yesterday voted to open the schools up, no masks, no social distancing. So go figure, whereas LA and San Diego are closed, I have a feeling that that's gonna change. But um, to your to your point, there's this sort of uh, la laissez-faire sort of uh, attitude towards the 
COVID crisis. And I do think that people got cabin fever. We do think that there's going to be some shutdowns. And that's going to impact uh, a lot of things. Uh, you predicted correctly when I talked to you in March that we would be back 100% in July. You nailed it, and we are. Um, although I don't know all practices if they're doing that and how that's going to be if there's a second wave and a shutdown. But let me pivot a little bit more and talk to you um, and our audience really about your career because you've had such a um, long and persistent, impressive career in so many different things. Like you said, you're board, a board member of 20 companies. Um, and a lot of people ask me to ask you, how does he make it all happen? Like, how do you, how do you have like more than 24 hours in a day, Dick? Like, there's something that we don't know. How do, what's your secret? What's your secret? Well, let me, maybe I'll spend a minute, uh, you know, telling a little bit of my story and some of the things that uh, people don't know, uh, probably. And then, uh, and then there might be some positive uh, examples uh, for other people, you know, interested in a similar, uh, similar pathway. But, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, fourth generation Minnesota Swede. I, I grew up in a in a blue collar family. My father owned a construction business, and when I was uh, you know just in uh, junior high and high school, my dad already had the Lindstrom and Son sign in the, in the closet, and uh, I started following him to work when I was 12. And so I did get an insight uh, into managing business and then got an interest in business from an early stage because I was sort of born and bred and groomed to take over the family construction business. And uh, so I went off to college to, you know, get trained to do that. And I had a great uh, uh, growing up life. I lived on the shore of a, of a lake here in Minnesota and, uh, and played uh, football, hockey, baseball in, in high school and uh, was, you know, active in, in uh, social events and captain of my hockey team. And, you know, so, I mean, I had a great uh, upbringing, went off to, University of uh, Minnesota, and uh, you know, joined a fraternity there, and lived uh, in the fraternity Sigma Alpha Epsilon, and you know, had the opportunity to uh, exercise some leadership there. I spent, you know, one year as Russ Chairman, one as uh, Vice President, and one as President of the fraternity, and and so I got to learn what Robert's Rules of Order were, and 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 again, learn a little bit about uh, leadership, and then and, and the only way to learn how to lead is to you know give be given opportunities to lead, and then follow through. So what I say a lot of times to people is that, you know, if these opportunities present, you know, say yes to opportunity is one thing. And that's a little bit of what happened to me as far as medical school. So, so I was, uh, you know, a good student. Uh, I ended up in the honors division uh, at the College of Liberal Arts at the university and randomly, randomly, I got the dean of the medical school as my advisor. And the dean only took two students a year, and he ended up with uh, with my name. I wasn't even in pre-med at the time. I was planning to go into the family business. Uh, very charismatic dean, uh, and when people ask me, did you always want to go into medicine? No, I was going to go into the family business. Uh, but this dean talked me into going to uh, uh, medical school after about a year. He was very charismatic, and uh, and so basically medicine picked me. So I went off to medicine. And the uh, same thing happened there to me in regards to ophthalmology. I, in those days at the University of Minnesota, you could pick a, a medical track, a surgical track, or a pediatrics track. And I, I picked the surgical track. And like many people, I thought maybe I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon or you know, maybe a cardiovascular surgeon. Uh, and in my, uh, 
second year of medical school, uh, a new professor came from Harvard, uh, Don Doofman, who uh, is a cornea specialist and was working on corneal preservation. He went to that same dean that talked me into going to medical school and said, hey, I need a medical student to work in my laboratory. And the same dean said, well, why don't you go talk to, to uh, this medical student, Dick Lindstrom, and uh, he did. And so in my second year of med school, I needed some uh, money for spending money. So I went to work in Don Doofman's laboratory and that began a collaboration that really extended until his, uh, to his death. And so that sort of tracked me into ophthalmology. You know, after you spend, uh, he had my whole career planned out, right? I was gonna become a cornea specialist, come back to Minnesota, join him, yada, yada, yada. And, and that's kind of what I did. So, but again, it was, you know, I could have said, no, nah, I don't wanna do that. I wanna be an orthopedic surgeon or whatever. And, and again, it was this concept of saying yes to opportunity when it presents. And so I said, sure, and joined his lab and, and ended up as an ophthalmologist. Uh, the chairman of the department was getting older, getting ready to retire. In those days, our chairman did cornea cataract uh, uh, and some glaucoma surgery. A refractive was really uh, not uh, being done at the time other than corneal relaxing incisions in the keratoplasties. And so we put together a fellowship training program that would train me in all those skills. So I did a year of a cornea fellowship at Minnesota. Then I went down to Dallas, Texas and worked with some very high volume cataract surgeons in Dallas, Texas, Bill Harris and Charlie Key, uh, and learned about phacal emulsification and in the early days got introduced to posterior chamber lenses, actually in the late 70s. Uh, and then I went off to uh, the University of Utah and did a six month fellowship in uh, glaucoma. So I ended up doing fellowship training in cornea, cataract, glaucoma, uh, and then went back uh, on the faculty at the University of Minnesota as an assistant professor. And they also made me uh, uh, the chief of ophthalmology at our VA hospital, which was at that time the busiest surgical VA uh, in the US. And so uh, a lot of eye surgery was being done there uh, at the time. And that's where our senior residents went to learn their surgery. So. So I ran the cornea service and saw lots of patients, did lots of surgery, had my own research lab, continued to do research into uh, corneal preservation and uh, you know, spent a decade there and went from assistant professor all the way through full professor. And when I decided to go into private practice, actually also had an endowed chair. I was pretty happy at the university, but uh, the university you know, ran into some challenges as far as accessing patients. And that's what led me into private practice. Now, how did I get involved in industry? So I was a young assistant professor, 31 years old, and I got a call from uh, uh, the uh, one of the senior VPs at 3M, uh, who then became, you know, over time, a, a good friend, Bill Coyne. And he said, well, you know, I'd like to come over and talk to you. I said, sure, I'm happy to talk to you. 3M been very supportive of the University of Minnesota. And so, so he came over and he said, well, we just bought a company uh, in the ophthalmology field and we'd like you to be our chief medical officer. And I went, hmm, are you sure? And he went, yeah, we've done our due diligence, uh, I'm sure. And I said, well, I don't even know if I can do that. And he said, well, we know you can do it. So go talk to your department chair. And the ruling at that time was when you were at the University of Minnesota or in most universities, you could kind of have one day to do what you wanted to do. Uh, and so, so the dean and my department chair said, yeah, you can do what you want one day a week. So I. Spent 15 years, you know, going over to the 3M campus. I had an office there uh, every Friday. And, and that, of course, was uh, an outstanding uh, 
you know, business education on top of what I got in uh, my schooling, but also from my own family. Uh, and that got me started uh, really working with industry. Uh, and I would say at some level, again, it's saying yes to opportunities. So, I mean, I was kind of out of the box. I could have said, no, I'd rather just spend that day seeing patients or working in my own research lab. I didn't know what it would be like to work with industry, but I found uh, it, it was, you know, very uh, satisfying and very constructive. Uh, they were a very research-oriented uh, company. Uh, I got to work with a ton of PhDs, two veterinary ophthalmologists, did a lot of uh, research uh, on uh, new technologies uh, in uh, the eye care field, and they later both contact lenses and, and devices, not drugs, and they later divested actually their technology to, uh, to Alcon, and actually that's where diffractive multifocals came from. Uh, the first gas polymer, uh, you know, gas permeable contact lenses came out of the 3M labs and the like, and so that got me started, and you know, I just kept uh, basically, you know, taking a certain amount of my time and committing it to uh, you know, working with industry to resolve unmet needs. And I, 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 when I was 31 years old, I found it rewarding. And when I'm now today 72 years old, I, I still found it re rewarding. So I went off, uh, you know, and had a very busy clinical surgical practice at the university. And I then started a private practice, Minnesota Eye Consultants. And I wanted to uh, have an academic private practice and realized this was... Uh, you know, over 30 years ago, and there really weren't academic private practices. So I went around town and tried to find, uh, you know, there were quality practices, but none of them wanted me to do, you know, research or clinical trials and the like. They just wanted me to come in and see as many patients as possible and, and turn the crank, if you will. And I said, well, no, I want to do at least one day, maybe two days a week of academic uh, work, and I'll see patients the other three days. And everyone said no. So so that meant I, the only way I could, you know, build an academic private practice was to create my own. So I went into solo practice, me and six employees, uh, and that was the beginning of Minnesota Eye Consultants, which is now 55 doctors and 400 employees, and we've continued to be a, an academic private practice, uh, you know, 31 years later. I do a lot of clinical trials, and, and I've got uh, very prominent partners, as you know, that I've sort of followed in my footsteps. When I was a university doc, I started training fellows. It was interesting. I, one day I was a fellow, and the next day I was training fellows. Uh, and so for my entire uh, career, I've been uh, training fellows. And uh, when people you know, ask me what's the most rewarding thing in your career, it actually uh, is uh, working with the young fellows. And while I was at the University of Minnesota, the residents, but you know, today it's mostly fellows. Uh, and, you know, I've, I have done some inventing, as you've said. I actually coming up on 50 patents now, but, and I've licensed some of them, and they're out there in, in, the, in the world being utilized. And I've worked with, you know, companies large and small. I still consult with uh, big strategics, but I, you know, mainly work with startups nowadays. But, uh, and still have a few of my own ideas and inventions. And, uh, um, and, I, and I find, you know, all of the above, you know, all of the above rewarding. Uh, as far as, you know, nobody can follow someone else's pathway, but, you know, I do get asked a lot, well, I, I would like to do some of the things that you've done. I would like to get engaged with industry. And, you know, what, what I say to people is that the first thing, you know, I believe you need to do is you need to get into practice, you know, get yourself well-trained, but then get into practice 
and build a large practice in, in, in an area of interest. And you're, it has to be an area you're really passionate about and interested in. And once you build a presence, and it does take a few years to do that, but once you build a presence in really any field, then you can look around and see, you know, so which companies are interested in this field. And, and there's lots of ways to get connected once you built that presence. And then probably the easiest way to start to work with industry is to do what we call investigator-initiated clinical trials. And so right. let's say you have, uh, you know, uh, you have an interest in glaucoma, you know, which would fit fit you, uh, Asan, and many. Then, you know, you have an interest in glaucoma, you got to build a nice glaucoma practice first and, and, and have some skills and knowledge, but then you go to a company that wants to, you know, that's trying to develop something new and interesting in glaucoma, and then you offer, you know, to do a clinical trial on their current technology. Uh, and then once you do a nice job, you know, for them in that regard, and then usually you get invited to talk about your outcomes, so you get a chance to get on the podium, uh, then you're likely to be invited to participate in, in their clinical trials as they're developing the next-gen technologies. And so it just sort of builds, uh, you know, one step uh, at a time, uh, and everyone's in a hurry. Uh, I was when I was young, too, but, you know, you, you, you kind of do have to do it one step at a time. First, you have to have the critical mass of patients. Then you have to have the area of interest. Then you basically have to have a few ideas, uh, and then, you know, be willing to do the work to study those ideas and uh, then share your outcomes with your colleagues. And, and if you get invited to speak, you have to give a good talk. It's all the usual things. You're being tested and, and evaluated along the way, but uh, that's the way you kind of block and tackle your way up. And then what ends up happening is the, you know, companies large and small end up coming to you, you know, you, when you reach a certain, when you reach a certain level. So, uh, yeah. But it's a commitment, you know, and in the world, you know, I would say in the world today, uh, you know, it, economically, uh, probably uh, it's as, as lucrative to efficiently see patients and do surgery as it is to work with industry. And so, I mean, it really does at some level have to be a passion. Uh, it is possible when you start to work with uh, you know, startups, uh, you know, and you're serving on their medical advisory board or board of directors that uh, you don't get paid much, but you do get the opportunity often to get some equity. And if those companies become successful, you know, economically, there can be an upside there. Uh, but, uh, you know, just going and consulting for uh, uh, you know, a major strategic, you know, to be honest, uh, I have several young docs that have said, you know, that's an awful lot of work, what you do, you know, and, and actually if I just stayed home and saw patients, I'd be economically farther ahead. And, and, and they're right when you analyze it that way, you know. 20 years ago, it was a different world. I mean, the industry could pay uh, a little better than they can pay today, but it's all the rules and regulations today. Um, they really can't, uh, you know, pay uh, an ophthalmologist, arguably, as well as an ophthalmologist can do just staying home and seeing patients. Yeah, no, these are, I mean, he, you know, you're, you're spot on. And I think, you know, uh, for our audience, you, you cover such a good ground of, you know, your perspective, but to your last point, you're absolutely right. When you're first starting and, you know, you fly out to, although now with COVID, you're not really flying, but, you know, you fly out to wherever and then you miss a day of clinic and you come back, um, 
It might sound glorious, but you're right. Economically, it's actually probably worse than a wash. But yeah, the rules and regs are so stiff yeah. nowadays. So I mean, now you fly. Let's say you're going to fly off to, uh, <laughs> you know, visit a company in uh, another state. Uh, you know, they can't. You know, they can provide you a coach airfare, but they can't. You know, pay you for your travel time. So you give up. You know, you give up that travel time for free, and then. Uh, Know the, if you spend a half di- day with them, they can pay you for four hours, and uh, you know typically you know reimbursement rates because they're the same everywhere, depending yeah. on your experience, are you know maybe five hundred to seven hundred dollars an hour. If you if you you know thought about that, you would go you know that's not too good you know to get paid you know, and then you got to fly back home, so, <laughs> you know you, you you spend a day and a half for for you know. Two three thousand dollars. That's you can do better than that in the in the clinic and OR. So yeah, and and so, and you know what? To your point earlier, though, if it's in your blood and it's in your passion, then yeah, you have to be passionate about it. And some people are, and and it, yeah. it is fun to uh, to work with uh, the major strategics on exciting new technologies. There are a lot of super bright people there. They are very committed to uh, you know helping others, just like we are, and. Uh, uh, there are definitely a lot of unmet needs, and so we, we we need those clinician scientists who are willing to help, you know, translate the the bench research to the bedside, if you will. Um, and uh, and fortunately, we have you know we have quite a few of them that are passionate about it. And then, of course, we need people to teach. You know, once we have a new technology, you know, who better to teach somebody else how to use it than the people who were involved in the clinical trials and the development of the product. I mean, they know it yeah. in and out, and so, so that's uh, that's the way it is. But, um, but you know, every step of the way, you know, it does have some challenges. And I've seen a lot of people, you know, give it a try and then not really enjoy it uh, and fall off on it. Uh, and uh, but you know, some of us, and I guess you and I are in that list. We we do sort of fall in love with it, and then. Uh, and then we're passionate about it. We get excited about innovation, and that's what you know the Ophthalmology Innovation Summit and and everything that you do, Craig Thymac, is all about. Is you know is sharing that excitement and solving that you know next problem and helping people. Yeah, and, and you know you know you know in that to that order uh, when I when I look at your career, what's really uh, you know I tell you as a friend, I mean, you told me once you have these five year goals. You remember that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, 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 remember, I remember everything you told me. Five year goals, personal, and you got your career goals. And then, you know, so what's impressive, someone like me looking at you, uh, peeling back the layers of the on, uh, onion of your career, how you were able to manage up and down. What I mean by that is what's remarkable is you had, you know, you've trained over 70, 75 fellows, call it. You know, a lot of these guys are the big names. Some of them have gone on to great startups, which you and I have funded. And then, and then, but at the same time, you managed to be president of ISRS, ASCRS, and all the international stuff you've done. That's the remarkable thing that I um, I'm so impressed about. Like how you do that part of it too. Um, tell us a little bit about that. How did you t- find time to run a big clinic? Um, and recruit doctors and then do that as well with, and, and make sure Jackie's happy. So I, I, I am a planner, so I do believe you, you need to be a planner, uh, to, you know, have a, a, 
you know, functional life because uh, otherwise you just get bounced around. And, and I do plan in five-year increments, and it may sound a little bit funny, but we kind of get plugged into that a little bit. Uh, it's not exactly five years, but we go, you know, four years of high school and four years of college, although many of us take five years. I, I did it four, but nowadays five is not unusual, but medical school and internship is five years, and residency, two years of fellowship for me was five years. So, so I, I'm basically on my uh, 11th five-year plan in ophthalmology, and, and uh, you know, I, I'm still doing it, uh, you know, and that, that plan, however, I, I, I do together with my wife, uh, and, you know, it does include, uh, you know, how much time do we want to take, uh, you know, off, and, 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 and what do we want to do, and where are we in our, uh, our life as far as children and the like and their needs, and so, so you, you can plan ahead about five years, and, you know, some people try to go longer, but I find that pretty effective because sometimes what I want to do and what I can do seems to change uh, uh, every five years, and so, so doing a five-year plan, uh, you know, helps, and, uh, and both personal and professional, and uh, you know, personal includes uh, family, and uh, you know, for example, when I turned 55, I sat down with my wife and we said, you know, while we're still healthy, let's take some time off, and uh, when I turned 55, uh, we went off to Hawaii and bought a second home in Hawaii. Uh, you know, for five years uh, was the plan, and I basically took 12 weeks off every winter. And uh, a lot of people say that's impossible; you can't do that. But it's not impossible; you can do it. So I, I would work a month, uh, and then I would go. And I had a group, you know, that's the advantage of a group. But yeah. I would work work a month, and then I go to Hawaii for a month, and then I'd work another month, and go to Hawaii for a month. So I I spent 12 weeks uh, in Hawaii every uh, winter. And after five years, we liked it, so we did it again. And uh, and and you just you know it, you couldn't do it if you didn't plan it out. And we did it during the ten years that my uh, uh, children were away in college and getting their training, and they could come over and visit us. So, and so it worked out pretty well in that regard. And then they moved back to Minnesota, got married, started having their own children, and then Hawaii was too far away. So the next five-year plan was to come back closer to home. And as you know, that's when I bought a a second uh, uh, home there in the Orange County area, uh, in the Irvine Newport Beach area, and that's also ophthalmology mecca. So it worked out great for my consulting, and that was only three hours away. And and so I, instead of doing, uh, uh, you know, the schedule I told you, I started to do two weeks, uh, two weeks in California, two weeks in Minnesota, two weeks in California, two weeks in Minnesota. And you know, it some of these things that or maybe a little out of the box, you can do it. And, and in, in a sense, it was saying yes to opportunity again. And when I, when my wife and I look back on those 10 years in Hawaii, we go, wow, those were great years. You know, I mean, we were, uh, you know, we were quite healthy. We'd play tennis in the morning and golf in the afternoon and watch the sunset and go out for dinner. And, you know, those were very special years. Now, I could have been, you know, I could have been seeing, I guess, another, you know, 60 hours a week worth of patients. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I've, you know, been adequately reimbursed, and you do have to have a financial plan, and the like, uh, you know. And I found, uh, you know, that was that was worth doing, and worth worth, I guess, loss of loss of income. So, I mean, not everybody wants to do that, but you you can, you know, once you figure out what it is you want to do, then you lay out the plan, uh, and then sometimes you need advice, and you need a mentor, and and the like. And as you said, if you say, I really want to 
find a pathway in the industry, you know, that you can talk to someone who's done it and have a five-year plan of here's the things I'm going to do. Uh, and it's amazing when you, you know, lay out your plan that there are people there that, you know, uh, you'll find people that are willing to help you. And, you know, we all do need some mentors along the way. And, and so it is important to find uh, good ones, but they'll help you, uh, uh, you know, make, make the pathway that you want. Every now and then, you know, make a you know five-year plan, and it's not what didn't turn out to be what you liked, and you can, of course, you know, stop at any moment and, and start over, right? So you don't have to you know, complete a bad five-year plan. I mean, I, that hasn't happened to me yet, but if if, if you, uh, you know, if you if you made one that wasn't working for either you or your family or was uh, disruptive to your, I'm going to go sail around the world and goodbye to your wife or something, and it wasn't you know disruptive to her, then you know. <laughs> that plan might end up having to be aborted. But, <laughs> but for me so far, that I haven't had to abort a plan yeah. yet. So, uh, but I mean, you have to be flexible. And, you know, obviously my plan this year uh, for 2020, you know, is, is not not going according to schedule. But, but I, you know, I have a, what I call a day timer. And I, uh, I, uh, I'm one of those strange people. If you ask me today, what are you going to be doing on August 10th? Uh, 2022, I can tell you, you know, yeah. I can tell I, you where, where I plan to be. Now, if COVID-19 says I can't go, you know, then uh, that's a different story. Or if I'm sick, then that's a different story. But I mean, I, I, I actually uh, plan, you know, several years ahead and know exactly where I intend to be at any given moment. And that includes planning to have time for myself and for my family. And my, my whole extended uh, family here in Minnesota is 20 people. So I get everybody together, you know, once a month, and and then, uh, you know, to have a good friend, you have to have shared experiences. I think that's uh, one of the you got to have shared, you know, uh, perspective on life a little bit. But you also have to have shared experiences, and so you need to take the time to go have some of those shared experiences. And if you don't put them in the schedule, you know, they don't happen. Uh, and and you and I know that's true because. You know, we'll plan ahead two or three months to have lunch, right? And, you know, if we plan ahead two to three months, it works. Yeah. If we didn't make that plan, we, we wouldn't, right? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So I, I know you have a billion things going on, but I want to, and that's just, um, you know, it's just incredible to have your perspective and sort of have that drive, you know, because I think a lot of people just sort of get out into community work and then, you know, they just kind of go into what I call automatic mode or, you know, autopilot mode. And that leads to a lot of burnout. In, in my generation, a lot of people are burning out because they just don't have the, I, in my opinion, the passion when it comes to, you know, the grind, they call it. Um, and these are their words, not mine. And I think that some of the things that you're describing really, for those of you listening to me, is remarkable because you, you're still getting stimulated. You're still doing, you know, novel stuff, and but you're also teaching so you're giving back and you're, there's a lot of fulfillment that goes along with that. But also if you're a study of psychology, like I am, and I, what I like about your planning is you get a lot of certainty because you're now, you have, like you said, August 22nd, 2023, you know, you intend at least to be in Kauai with, you know, Jackie and hopefully uh, I'm invited. Um, and uh, <laughs> you're, you, there's a certainty that goes on in your life that I think helps you. And, and I think it helps. I really do. And so on that, what are your, as your parting words for us, what are your, some of the things that you're excited about now innovation wise? I know you and I talk a lot, but 
what's what's top three? What do you what do you say? Like these are the top three things in my mind that I think are really unmet needs, and these are being developed, and you're you're excited. As far as new uh, new technologies yeah. go, yeah, anything. And then, in my opinion, also, what if they're not being developed? But you would say, you know, it'd be really cool to have this. Um, what what are some things that you're you're, um, you're you would give advice to to both uh, ophthalmologists but also in industry? Well, I think you know the first, obviously, at top of mind right now is that. We are going through a once in a, a lifetime, I hope, difficult time, and the the first issue is to you know survive it both uh, you know personally, family wise, and in in your practice. And so that obviously needs to be you know a little bit top of mind right now. So we are all uh, you know adapting to something you know uh, totally you know totally new, um, and I think that's necessary. Uh, I think. We are still pretty abreast in ophthalmology. Ophthalmology still supports innovation. Uh, there is a, you know, a tremendous amount of innovation you know, coming. And uh, you know, the most common thing we do uh, probably is cataract surgery. And I've been, been you know, asked more than once to say, well, you know, tell me what it'll look like in, in, in five years or 10 years. And, and we're going to need to do twice as many cataracts as we do today in America. And, uh, in, in the in about five to ten years, and uh, with the same number or slightly less ophthalmologists. So one thing to keep in mind is you're going to be very busy, uh, and two, uh, you're going to need to be very efficient. And what I believe, you know, we'll be doing, and I won't be doing it. You'll be doing it, but you know, we'll, we'll be doing bilateral same day sequential cataract surgery. That will be routine. We'll be, uh, you know, implanting, you know, accommodating adjustable intraocular lenses. So. Everybody will end up plano sphere uh, without having to have any uh, corneal refractive surgery or other, uh, you know, treatments other than uh, a, an adjustment to the IOL, and we'll have accommodative amplitudes that will be, you know, enough so that uh, we'll have a full range of vision. And so we're going to be able to give people back uh, the kind of vision they had, you know, presbyopic emetropic vision like I had when I was 40. And as that happens, the age for surgery is going to just keep drifting down. Uh, and uh, we'll be, you know, treating a lot more, uh, in quotes, dysfunctional lens syndromes with very, very mild cataracts. And the definition of cataract might start to be presbyopia. So, so I, I, and that's going to even increase the volume of surgeon even, even higher. And, and that is such a bread and butter part of what we do in, in ophthalmology. You know, cataract surgery is critical to, to most of us. Uh, and so uh, I would you know, focus on uh, being an efficient and quality cataract surgeon and being able to work in an efficient and quality environment. And if at all possible, be able to be an owner in that efficient and quality environment. And I tell all my fellows as they're looking for their next uh, uh, practice that, you know, you want to you wanna be on the facility side uh, because that side uh, seems to be more robust to, you know, third-party reimbursement reductions. And if we get capitated, it's also robust there. So, so pay attention to that, uh, uh, I, I think. Uh, for the anterior segment surgeon, you know, corneal refractive surgery and glaucoma are critical. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer in, uh, in, you know, an anterior segment surgeon that should be able to do, uh, you know, cataract, uh, uh, lens-based refractive, cornea-based refractive, and glaucoma. And the surgeon who can do that is going to prosper and do well, especially if they do it in their own uh, facility and in their own ASC. 
Uh, and we're probably about to learn that in COVID again, where some of our friends in the hospitals are going to get shut down, whereas those of us in our own offices and ASCs are going to keep cruising uh, right along. At least that's uh, that's my belief. So we're much more robust to external environmental challenges when we work that way. Uh, there are other great specialties. I mean, rent, retina is a great opportunity as well. But I, I'm a, an anterior segment surgeon, so uh, that's where I spend most of my, my time thinking. So, so you know, be, be a diverse, broad anterior segment surgeon, be a great cataract surgeon, be able to take care of lens-based and cornea-based refractive, and, uh, and also be able to manage glaucoma, and you'll have a prosperous future. Absolutely, absolutely. With, you know, and I, I think that, you know, we can, you and I can spend a couple hours. Uh, there's so much. <laughs> yeah, we and, could. <laughs> and I really enjoy you. But, you know, Jack is going to get mad at me and I'll never see you. So um, <laughs> having said that, I really want to thank you for spending the um, your precious time with us. And I look forward to seeing you again uh, in person when the COVID settles down a little bit um, here in Orange County. Um, and hopefully in a meeting as well, but uh, I was really bummed that the AAO canceled went virtual, but I, I totally get it. Me too. Yep. Um, well, we look forward to seeing you. Yes, same here. Thank you so much again, Dick. We hope you enjoyed this episode and plan on joining us for the Dry Eye Innovation Showcase on August 20th. Be sure to visit OIS.net and register today.